Hey, this is Ian. Hey, boss man. Yeah. What's going on, man? Hey, did you see the comments this week? I've got like a mouthful of chips here, man. You're just calling me at home. <laughs> yes. No, seriously. Did you see the comments on last week's episode? People coming out of the woodwork, I, man. I absolutely saw the comments. And I just literally, to pick up this phone call, I had to walk outside because there's a conversation going on in my house right now. People are excited, to say the least. Hey, we just want to say thanks to everybody who commented and gave their amazing feedback and advice, frankly. And also thanks to Joe for coming on the show. You know, it's awesome to put himself out there like that. Got a bunch of amazing comments at tropicalmba.com slash investments. We're definitely going to do a follow-up on that show, but just not this yeah. week. I think people are so passionate about this. This is the conversation that's going on in my house right now. People are so passionate about this because, number one, it's kind of high stakes, right? A lot of times you got a lot of money wrapped up in this stuff. And the other thing is, like, people have a lot of experience in this arena, too. You know, whether it's, like, working with people, like a financial advisor, or it's doing it on their own, so... I think it's great that everybody's fired up and has an idea about what to do. Absolutely. And we'd like to encourage you to keep sending the voicemails, the emails, and the comments. We will be working to incorporate them into future episodes. And speaking of future episodes, we're also going to have Mr. Money Mustache. I know your favorite blogger on the program in a few weeks, and he's talking about these very topics. Yep. Favorite blogger and lifestyle designer, if I could add that. <laughs> he is not just talking about money. He's also talking about lifestyle. All right, boss man. Well, why don't we roll the regularly scheduled program? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, this episode's called The Exit. All the show notes, resources will be at tropicalmba.com slash The Exit, as well as the transcripts. We've recently started posting transcripts. You know, Ian, there's a lot of people that can't hear well or can't hear at all or don't like listening to podcasts. And part of the reason we started creating transcripts is to make the show available to them. The other part and the inside reason we started making transcripts was because Jane, our producer, recommended, actually, I think she mandated that we do it. But it's actually an integral part of our editing process now, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And we'll have a lot more to say about maybe that in our workshop at a Barcelona event. Yes. We're going to talk about how we produce the show. It's also fascinating, too, for podcasters out there, like if a journalist or a blogger would want to say something about your show by providing a transcript, it makes it a lot easier for them to do so. This is what happens, Dan, when you start involving professionals, you learn all kinds of things about your craft. Speaking of professionals, we came across an article a few months ago by a guy named Jeff Giese. It was posted in the Harvard Business Review, and it was called Dealing with the Emotional Fallout of Selling Your Business. Needless to say, this resonated a little bit with the boss man and myself. As most of you know, Ian and I recently sold probably like the biggest thing we've ever done, our core business. I don't know. There's a lot of weird thoughts. It's not all positive when you sell a business like this. Yeah. It was uh, very much so emotional process, I'd say, Dan, much more than anything else. And you don't expect it to be, right? Because you're selling your business and you're supposed to be detached from that. But as we talk with Jeff, that can be a large part of your ego and your personality. Some more inside baseball after we got off the phone with Jeff, because you know we just read an article by the guy. We didn't really know who he was. So we reached out to him, had a chat, conversation. And when we got off the phone, we were just like, whoa, that guy was awesome to talk to. 
And so I hope you guys feel the same way. I mean, Ian, I know that Jeff was on a time constraint for this interview and we both felt like it could have gone twice as long. So this is one that spoke directly to us. So I'm going to just give a little bit of a background about Jeff. He created his first highly successful bootstrap business and online publishing straight out of college in 2001 on the advice of his mentor, who just so happened to be Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal. Jeff sold that business to a private equity firm seven years later and immediately set up another company which he also subsequently sold. So Jeff's been through this process a couple times and made some pretty big mistakes along the way, which not only cost him money, but peace of mind and sanity. So we're going to talk about some of those things as well. He's been kind enough to be so open and share these stories with us today. We started this conversation by asking Jeff about what motivated him to start on his entrepreneurial journey in the first place. I mean, I think it was kind of like cockiness and naivete. And I mean, I used to joke that it was a combination of ambition, you know, and issues with authority. So what else was I going to do? But the truth is, I think there maybe there was something in the water where I guess being at Stanford in the 90s, that's a pretty entrepreneurial environment. So it felt more normal to start a business for me. And so I think that helped. I was just curious, like, geez, can this thing work? And then really thinking through that calculus of how do I manage my risk here? What's the upside opportunity and how do I manage my downside risk so that that I'm managing that exposure? And I think if you can wrap your head around and control downside risk, you're in a much better position to shoot for the upside. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We were speaking with an entrepreneur the other week who said he would never sell his business because it allowed him to do so many things and give him that platform to explore his interests. Is there a part of you that regrets selling the business and wishes you could still have that platform to sort of supercharge your interests in that way? Definitely. I mean, I think there's a huge trade-off in selling your business. I remember that one business mentor saying, well, sounds great, Jeff. What are you going to do afterwards? And I said, well, I'm going to take some money off the table and take a year off to travel and I'll figure out what I'm going to do next when I get back. And in retrospect, like he was right. Like I didn't really have a plan. And also I think that success came to me relatively early. And now I look back and I was like, damn, that was an awesome business with a lot of cash flow. Like, how did I do that? So yeah, the answer is I do miss having a platform like that. And and now having gone through the process of selling it and learned a lot more, I see all these other alternative things that I could have done where I was kind of getting bored and antsy. And I had a COO who stepped into the CEO role when I, after we sold it, like I could have been my own private equity company and made him the CEO and then gone and taken time off, been chairman. I could have partnered with a private equity firm and acquired businesses through it as a platform, or I could have just kept it as my own cash flow vehicle business. So there are definitely times when I think, geez, I kind of wish I still had that platform. I I shouldn't have sold it. Even economically, like probably longer term, it continued to really grow after I sold it. So there are times that I think that, but I'm not really looking back. I think it was the right decision for me at the time. So I, I don't really regret my decision, but I do miss having that platform. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about the thought process that led you to selling that business. There's this mindset where you're not successful as an entrepreneur until you've had an exit or have sold a business. 
And I think that I bought into that a little bit too much in retrospect. So I think part of the thought process was, geez, like I want to be successful. Like I want to notch this as a success somehow and selling it and making some money and taking your off. Like this is a way to like close the arc on this and put a stake in the ground and define it as a success. Frankly, I was restless. I'd been very heads down and focused on it for a while. If I wanted to take time off to travel and so forth. So that factored into it. And then maybe there was like this, desire to take money off of the table and secure my future a little bit. So I think all those things factored into the decision. One of the motivating factors for us was this idea of mental RAM and the stress of having an asset that is fragile in some ways, you know, like something could happen and screw it up. But I worry sometimes that that stress has just been replaced by other things like, oh shit, what am I going to do next kind of stress? So how did that work for you? Did you feel during that year of travel a sense of freedom that you hadn't when you own the business? Yeah. So I remember when I first left, I was like, you know, yay, just made all this money. I sold my business, which was my goal for a long time. We really grew this thing. I felt great about it. And now I was going to sailing school in the British Virgin Islands. And I was like, why do I feel like shit? (laughs) And I didn't realize like, oh, you know, that was a huge identity thing that I was like mourning. And so that took some adjustment initially when I took that year off to travel. And then when I got back, it happened again because I had sold my home and moved back to Washington. And then I was like, now I had this great year off. Like now, what am I going to do? So there's definitely an identity. Like in retrospect, I look back and I was like, oh, I had an identity crisis. (laughs) I didn't really realize that at the time. I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You know, it was like my identity was cut off from me somehow. That was an interesting lesson and adjustment. And it's something very few people, I think, think about or talk about when they're looking at selling their businesses. Jeff, I think we can relate to that, especially the identity crisis, because you work so hard and so long on these businesses, and it's kind of who you're known as to your friends and family, and then all of a sudden you don't have it, and then you have to be somebody else. Maybe you have to be a good brother or son or something like that that potentially have been neglecting. I don't know if that was the case for you. So now when you look at your identity, how has that changed? Who do you identify with now? Is it a coach? Is it someone that's started businesses? Is it just a nice guy? Who do you think your identity is now? Well, I mean, I think now it's definitely different. I mean, I after that period, I moved up to New York City and I was in a relationship. I was living with my friend and didn't really have an identity up there yet. I didn't realize how many psychic benefits came with my company and owning it. So when I moved up there, it was like, these people don't know who I am. And I was like, kind of insecure without my crutch of an identity. And looking back, it was probably the best thing that could have happened because I learned to just be confident without having to rely on a professional identity or an achievement or this or that. So I think one way that the process changed me is I'm much more confident now. My source of confidence is much more internal. And my identity now is like, yeah, professionally, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm executive coach, and I have these different writing projects and so forth. I feel like my individual identity is stronger than those things, whereas before, I think my professional identity looms so large. And then the other thing that I think that I've learned is in the coaching world, they talk about the being side of life and the doing side of life. And I was awesome at the doing side of life in hindsight and kind of sucked at the being side of life. And since then, I've brought those a little bit more into balance. Like now I'm able to like be and enjoy life in a new way that I didn't before. Okay, so here's a crazy question. What makes someone good at being at life? Like, What are the things that you maybe sucked at before that you're better at now? 
that's a hundred million dollar question. It is interesting, right? I mean, I do these thought experiments too, where let's imagine a crazy scenario, right? A meteor comes down and then it blows up half the earth and we're all in these camps, you know, trying to fend for water and whatnot. And I turn to you and I say like, who are you? And you say, I'm Jeff, the business owner, all this stuff. And you say, well, Jeff, there's no businesses anymore. Like we're sitting here on planet earth, just trying to forage for water. That's right. Ian's become a survivalist, which is the most <laughs> cliched post-business sale move. <laughs> you know, it's all the soft and fuzzy stuff. So I think, you know, it's like figuring out yourself. And, you know, that's one of the great thing about travel. And, and I know your community, people are really into travel and, and living abroad as you really figure out who you are and can hear your own voice and get grounded in your kind of personal values and, and who you stand for and gain kind of perspectives and, and that sort of thing that I think maybe helps you be better, you know, being more in the world. Do you think this is the recipe for entrepreneurial failure, you know, because it's like there's so many stories of these young people that are cocky and they're going to the office and they're making cold calls and all this stuff. And then you sell your business and all of a sudden it's like time to heal the relationships that maybe you neglected or to see the world that you didn't see and to do the things that you didn't do. I wonder how difficult is it to start again if you ever want to go back? Then you go through this period where you're like, geez, have I lost my edge and all this stuff? And I think it's kind of a yeah, yes and. I think there's a time and place for both. Like, yeah, my neuroses helped me succeed. <laughs> and yet they're also getting in the way of other aspects of life. And so you just gain perspective on those things. And I think you can do both. And I think the goal is, you know, maybe in your first company, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, I'm, it was, I'm so glad I had all these neuroses and was in it, you know, because it helped me achieve this level of success. But I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, especially, you know, who I imagine is in your audience, like they want to achieve success on their terms. The more lifestyle entrepreneurs want to have a, a really good life and a good business. And they want to feel like they're owning it and they're fulfilled and they're on top of their game, both business wise and how they're leading their life. As opposed to somebody who's like, yeah, the next five years is going to suck. I'm going to work my face off and we're going to be a billion dollar company or go bust. And once I make it, then I'll start living <laughs> kind right. of mindset. I wanted to kind of come from a healthy place and feel fairly fulfilled in the process. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And I think Dan and I would say the same thing, but we had a similar time getting started, which was just work, 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 neglect a lot of things. And then after you have a little success, you come back and you say, well, you know, next time I think it would be good if I was a little bit more balanced. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's like a little bit of like survivor's bias going on here. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to say that, right? And there's a little bit of bullshit around that, especially in the coachy kind of world you can get so caught up in being and all the soft stuff that it's like no if you want to like build a business you got to work your ass off you know like yeah. there's always going to be that element of like fierceness or you know you need to bring to a business in order to get it off the ground so it's kind of holding both of those ideas at the same time let's zoom into something a little bit more specific when you sold the business like actually going through the process of marketing it talking to buyers and then actually transferring it I'm curious, when you look back on it, what kinds of mistakes you felt like you made during that process? Because Ian and I listed about at least 25 that we made. Yeah. And I listened to your podcast where you guys were talking about selling your business. And congratulations, by the way. Well, yeah, like you, we don't know if it was a good thing or not, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've caught us mid tailspin. <laughs> it sounds like it was a great success. So just own that. <laughs> yeah. So some of the mistakes that I made. So I guess some of the things we, I did right, where we did right, is working with an investment bank. I know you guys worked with a broker. So working with professionals who know how to market and sell a business is a, is a good thing. You guys talked a lot about getting your financial 
financials and stuff in order. So having really good financial documentation and being able to really communicate the trajectory and success and vision of your business. I think we did that really well. Personally, I loved the sales process. Like I was surprised how much I liked it. And one of the things that demystified it for me at first, it was like, oh, who are these investment banker people? Like it felt very like mystical at first. And then once I realized, oh, this is like selling real estate. It's just like selling a really expensive house. The investment banker is like the real estate broker. And like the brochure for the house is sort of like your prospectus, right? And they mail the prospectus to all these potential buyers, just like your real estate person would. And like due diligence is basically the home inspection and all that kind of stuff. That helped demystify the process. And I I thought it was a blast, frankly. I mean, it was almost like, you know, being on The Apprentice or something, (laughs) meeting with potential buyers and pitching and vision. I actually loved that stuff. I thought it was really fun. One of the other things that I think we did right was, you know, when you sell a business, a lot of entrepreneurs may not think of the tax consequences. So I was like obsessed with that and discovered that we had been in an empowerment zone. And long story short, it turned out that like I didn't have to pay capital gains tax on the sale of the business. So that was a huge win. Let's explain this real quick. This is very interesting. (laughs) I don't know if I should be on record talking about this, but our office was two blocks from the White House and there was some like HUD empowerment zone in downtown DC and there was some obscure law where if you had a business there for like five years, you were eligible to not have to pay capital gains tax that I found. Actually, I, I talked to tax lawyers and I ended up being the one who like discovered this and then checked it out with tax lawyers and accountants and it turned out that it checked out. So that was a huge win for me personally and for other, you know, shareholders in the business. So I definitely think, you know, if you're selling your business, look into the tax consequences of doing that and think about ways of minimizing, as they say. One of the things we experienced, Jeff, was that we were kind of like, all of a sudden, we were like the prettiest girl at the dance, you know, and like we were the ones that had the asset. And so there was like these lawyers and these buyers and these tire kickers, and they were all trying to take advantage of us. Were there people in your sales process that tried to take advantage of you? Well, yeah, I mean, I I call it and I don't mean to be sexist about it, but I call it the kind of hot girl at the prom strategy or hot guy at the prom where, you know, in terms of playing buyers off of each other, like you don't want to take the first date necessarily like you want to be a little coy. So I think there is that dynamic, but I think it actually works to your advantage when you're selling a business. And so there's a lesson there around not playing buyers off of each other, because I don't mean it in a cunning kind of way. But I do mean it in the sense that when you want to maximize value for something, having multiple bidders makes a huge difference. I think you guys made the point in your podcast that the broker or the investment banker, their goal is really to do a deal and being clear eyed about like, they're not necessarily serving your interests; they're serving the deal's interests. That was a really good insight that you guys brought out. And there are all these like weird people trying to, you know, capture equity from business owners and wealth management folks and, and all kinds of folks like that. So you have to really keep your head on your shoulders and have some advisors that you trust when you're going through that process. You know, it's like selling a house or something big. It's all of a sudden you start getting these little single pieces of mail. You know, it's like, hey, Jeff, congratulations. We saw you just sold your business. How about you come down and let us manage your money for you? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to share some of the mistakes that I made through the process. I would say the biggest mistake that I made, and, and this is even like gut-wrenching to talk about, is so in that deal when I sold the first company, we were paid a lump sum up front. And then there was a one-year earnout, which basically operates almost like a bonus. So, you know, the bulk of the payment was up front, which, you know, did well on that. And then an earnout is basically where they say, we want you to stay on and continue running the business. And in our case for one year, 
and we're going to pay you, you know, a multiple of the earnings that you grow over last year. So I stayed for an extra year. So sold the company in 2008, stayed for an extra year, 2009, and we just totally maxed out the earnout. I mean, it became a very material amount sum of money. And when it came due, you know, as you recall, 2008, 2009, there was a whole financial crisis, great recession, and, and it really hit the private equity world hard. Our earnout, which was, again, a sizable amount of money, at least for me, was considered unsecured debt. And they restructured all of their debt. They like declared bankruptcy and like played with all the debt. So long story short, wow. I didn't get paid that earnout. So totally scored a victory on the tax front but completely got screwed and lost out on their earnout front. And you'll hear a lot of stories from business owners about getting screwed on their earnouts and so forth. And at first I was like, you know, as you can imagine, I was pissed off and I was blaming that, you know, like kind of in this victim mindset around it. And then I start step back and I was like, what did I do wrong here? What's like the real lesson? What can I share with others to prevent? And there are two or three takeaways. One is when you're selling your business and working with your lawyers and your business broker or banker, map out all the different scenarios that could happen. This is just good advice when you're working with lawyers on any issue. Do some scenario planning and then see, geez, given the legal documents, what would happen if that happened? And think about all those different scenarios. And if we had thought through at the time, like our banker and our lawyer didn't think through the scenario that it was such the raw, raw 2008 private equity world that they didn't think through the scenario that there could be a financial crisis and they could declare bankruptcy and restructure the debt. If we had thought about that, we would have secured the earnout against the stock of the company. So I basically would have gotten the company back if they hadn't been able to pay for it. So I think one lesson is really do your scenario planning with your professional support team. And then I think another lesson is like don't skimp on lawyers and bankers and really push them because their interest is in getting the deal done. Don't skimp on lawyers in particular. I want to talk about skimping because you bring up a good point. Is it really skimping? I mean, we had some similar situations come up. I mean, you're talking about how you found this tax loophole and your tax advisor didn't find it. You're figuring out that you didn't earn your earn out. And this is something that potentially if your lawyer had done any of these deals before and seen this happen, he may have been able to prevent it. But it seems like along the way you had to step in and you're still taking responsibility here. So how do we hire better professionals? Is it just a matter of paying more? Yeah. I mean, I think there's an element of like, no matter what, you have to be on top of this stuff as the entrepreneur or business owner who's selling it. So I think that's maybe lesson number one is don't ever delegate everything. Like you still are going to want to look over the shoulders and cross your T's and dot your I's and do the scenario planning with your professional team as the entrepreneur and business owner. So, you know, still stay on top of that stuff that matters. And then I think the second lesson is, yeah, really try to hire the top people who have maybe done deals in your industry who you've talked to their previous customers and they check out. So yeah, doing a little due diligence on your professional advisors. In our case, like our banker, we did a lot of deals in the industry that we were in. So that was probably the right decision. Our lawyer at the time I hired because I liked him and he was slightly less expensive than some of the other lawyers. And in retrospect, like that was a mistake. I should have gone with, you know, expensive, proven New York lawyers who had done similar deals in our industry. There's this pressure, I think, on people who've sold a business for a lot of reasons to become investors. 
And I'm curious about how you've approached investing in your life. So that's been an interesting journey. And I, I really like the way you guys framed it on your podcast when you're like, when you're owning a business, you're getting the cash flow versus when you sell your business, you often get a lump sum. And then what do you do? And so I had started investing earlier as I was building my business and making money from that and really became, with the help of my business mentor, and I would read the personal finance blogs that are out there. So I was a little bit of a personal finance geek to begin with, and I definitely recommend that for entrepreneurs and business owners. And then when I sold the business, I was like, all right, should I work with, and I worked with financial planners before, but I never had other people manage my money for me. And so I definitely do recommend like getting your financial planning, your estate stuff done. But the decision of you working with investment managers is maybe a little bit more difficult. And so after I sold the company, there was more of a, you know, my net worth increased, there was more liquid assets. And I was like, should I work with a wealth management company and all these people call you? And I basically came to the conclusion that that industry was a racket. And I decided that rather than spending the money that I would on fees for that, I would spend that money on investing in my own education. So I joined an investment club kind of group in New York City. And I was basically the youngest and the poorest member of that and really just invested in my own education and became what you call a self-directed investor. So I think there's definitely a decision point there. It can be very rational for entrepreneurs to work with professional money managers that can make a lot of sense for people. In my case, for me, I decided, hey, I want to do this myself. Then the strategy became, well, how do I do this? What should my strategy be? And what I decided for myself was what they call a barbell strategy. Part of why I sold my business is I wanted to build a nest egg and secure my future. So I wanted part of my portfolio to be like a nest egg, basically like 90% of it, and doing straight asset allocation using you know low-cost, tax-efficient Vanguard mutual funds and taking that approach. And then setting aside 10% of that for what I call personal private equity, those really speculative investments, those future businesses, those angel-type investments where you can really swing for the fences. So that became my strategy. You said Vanguard. Did you mean mutual or index? Index funds. And then in terms of the 10%, you you were talking about throwing money at some of these maybe more risky ventures. Are you currently on the board of any of these ventures? What's your involvement? Yeah. So, I mean, that's been a journey too. I mean, I think there is pressure, especially in the tech startup world, to kind of do the angel investor thing. So I've dabbled in that. What I realized is like either you get really serious about that or you don't do it all. Like dabbling in it is probably not the smartest thing to do. So that was a little bit of an education curve. And then there were other businesses that I invested in that were more opportunistic. And these were businesses where I had a personal relationship with somebody and there are more bootstrap businesses like my old one. So for example, a friend of mine, I've known him since high school, incredibly bright guy, like he graduated from Harvard Business School, turned down his McKinsey offer, and he was going and starting a digital marketing agency in Raleigh and needed some startup capital to get it going, even though it was basically a bootstrap business. So, you know, I invested in that business and became the chairman of that company. And it's gone on and done very well for him and for my investment. So, so I like kind of those types of investments that are not in the Silicon Valley angel world and more kind of opportunistic business investments where more money comes in than goes out and you get a larger piece of the pie and a deeper relationship with the owner operator. So are you finding it fulfilling these days then to be involved in those kinds of arrangements? Do you get to maybe see yourself as a younger you starting these businesses? Is that part of it? 
Definitely. I mean, I see that a lot in the kind of, you know, through my executive coaching work. I mean, it's really gratifying when you can help people, you know, accelerate their growth and watch them become successful and do amazing things. And at the same time, like personally, I do miss building something myself. I'll always have that energy. It's a way to do that vicariously through others. So I still tinker and have side projects and I'll probably will build stuff in the future. And at the same time, I really love helping other people be successful in finding leveraged ways to invest and build value. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing with the audience your experiences and thoughts. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Yeah, I'm just curious before we end, what's it been like for you since selling your business? Like Dan said, Tailspin. We were actually looking to you to figure out what the next step is. So, <laughs> What does Tailspin mean for you? Like, What is that? You know, I think that we recognize or on our way to recognizing a lot of the things that you recognized too, which is, you know, trying to figure out what your identity is post-sale, trying to figure out the next impact that you can have, trying to figure out how to help other people that are on this journey too, whether it be through this podcast or maybe a little bit of money, exploring things like that. But generally for us, I think we're experiencing a lot of these things feelings that you've gone through one thought for you is and this is more of a question than an answer but it's like one thing i thought a lot about since then is like what's my relationship with drift or i call it floating as opposed to drifting because after you sell your business it can feel like you're drifting in life for a while right because you have this you know incredible goal and now suddenly you're like exploring new things and i think there's an element of there's some virtue in really embracing the i call it floating as opposed to drifting but i think there's some virtue in embracing that for a period of time at least it's very uncomfortable for a lot of post exit entrepreneurs and business owners at first but I think it's also an incredible opportunity to just open your eyes and explore and discover, get inspired for your next thing. Yeah, that resonates with me about what you said, because I think we had a lot of anxiety like right after the sale to like get back on the horse. I think our ideas were pretty bad at that time. You know, we were just kind of trying to maybe get our income back. I don't know. Now Ian's been racing his cars and I've been racing my bike and we're still doing business, but I just feel like we're not forcing it. Like we sort of felt like the first few months after the sale. Yeah. And it's also, it's partly like a feminine energy versus a masculine energy. Masculine energy is like, I have this vision and I'm going to go do this thing. And that's different from the, what I'm calling feminine energy of like, I'm going to let the universe guide me a little. Like I'm going to embrace and explore floor for a while and kind of give birth to my next thing and listen to the universe a little bit, so to speak, and be with not knowing or not having to figure it out for a while. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. But I think it's a useful one, at least for a certain period of time to kind of go do that. One thing I like about it is that it mirrors your investment strategy. It's sort of like a barbell approach to life in the sense that you can do a bunch of things and see what they're all about without committing your whole energy to it. I love that. That's really cool. And it's a creative process. So once you start to view entrepreneurship as a creative process, then you realize like these in-between periods are really when your creative juices are flowing the most and what's going to inspire your next ventures. Yeah, it's interesting. Earlier on in the episode, you know, you said part of you was driven by defiance and I can identify with that a lot. But within that defiance comes the creativity, right? And so in some ways, I feel like I've lost some of my defiance because you earn independence through money or something like that, right? And so then you kind of almost have to find this new way to get creative drive. Have you experienced that? Yeah, definitely. And one thing like that sticks with me, and again, this is like, I don't have answers here, but they're more questions. Like I love the Steve Jobs quote, creativity loves constraint. And for a lot of entrepreneurs after they sell their business, they're less constrained. Like I can live anywhere. I can do what I want with my time. You know, they're kind of in that mindset, right? And that's great in a lot of ways. And yet having constraints can actually 
make you way more creative. Sometimes you reach a certain point where you're, you almost want to trick yourself in saying, like, what constraints do I want to impose on myself? And a lot of times your creativity can come out of that. Next week on Wealthy People's Problems, we will be talking... <laughs> 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 I'm just saying that that's the case in general. I mean, like in your community, when people are building businesses abroad, you're not constrained in terms of where you live. But over time, people realize like if they travel too much, that's going to drive them crazy. So and they'll stay in Chiang Mai for like six months or something, right? It's kind of a very similar idea. Yeah, I make jokes about the wealthy problems, but really it's that all these things today cost less than they did 50 years ago, right? And the constraints are less too. And so you do have to make more decisions about your life. Definitely, yeah. And what a privilege and exciting opportunity to be in. So it's pretty great. This is a story about how good things happen when you reach out to random people that you read about on the internet. You know, Jeff could have just been some random, who knows who he was. I'm just pumped that we reached out to him. Happens every day. Happens every day. You got to put yourself out there. Then you can hear other people's sob stories. <laughs> really appreciate Jeff taking the time to share his perspective on exiting. And we'd be curious if any listeners have, you know, this is a really unique experience, one that people, you know, they work a huge portion of their lives to achieve. And then sometimes it doesn't meet your expectations. Sometimes it does. It's fascinating. Yeah, all joking aside, I mean, it's not something that's widely published online. It's how to deal with these issues, you know, let alone the details of the transaction and then the emotional labor that goes through these transactions as well. So I really appreciate Jeff taking the time to share that with us. Yeah, and that's what struck me about his original article posted in the Harvard Business Review. So we'll give you the link to that, plus the transcript and everything else mentioned in this episode. And if you'd like to share your exit story with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can check out the show notes for this one at tropicalmba.com slash the exit. And speaking of exiting, I got to go to DC Gento. So I'm going to get out of here. See you later, buddy. All right. See you, buddy. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.